What a blessing. Thank you. You guys did so wonderful. Thank you for singing out so well. It's our three to five-year-old class. In just a minute, we're going to dismiss the first to third graders. But before we do, I want to clarify one thing with our children's church. First or third grader, if you can pay very close attention, we are going to have you stay in the classroom until your parents come pick you up, just as a reminder. And so that way we keep you safe and secure until your parents can come get you. And so visitors, if, you are, uh, if you're visiting with us, if you're a guest, and you're sending your kids to uh, Children's Church, you can go right out, can go right out these doors and to the left is their Children's Church room. Uh, a couple of reminders, pick your kids up afterwards. Ten minutes after the service, we hand them a can of Mountain Dew. Uh, and ask them to drink it. And then 20 minutes after the end of the service, we give them a puppy uh, to take home. And so uh, just a reminder to pick your kids up. And first to third graders, if you could uh, just hang out in that classroom until your parents come after the close of service, pick you up. That would be great. All right, first to third graders, you can head on out. Thanks for singing with us. What a joy it was to sing with you for our worship service. We're turning to Exodus chapter 33, please. Exodus chapter 33. If you're new to the Bible and you have one in front of you, it's just the second book of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. Over the next six weeks, I'm going to bring to you a series on some of the attributes of God as we develop a picture of who God is. A.W. Tozier would say the most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. A lot of people have ideas about who God is. People want to believe in God. They want to believe in a God. They want to create a God of their own devising. They want to think about a God that's one way or another way. Maybe they even create their own version of God and dedicate their life to that God. Friends, I don't know about you, but I have no interest in creating my own God. I'd rather discover the truth about the God who exists, the creator who reigns over all, the one true God, and we only will know that through the scriptures. I'll be preaching the series over the next six weeks. We won't hit all the attributes of God, but we'll just hit six and maybe come back to it at a later date as we continue to develop our knowledge about who God is. This will go hand in hand with our Bible Institute class. It's open to anybody. It's on Tuesday nights from 7 to 8.30. If you'd like to sign up for that, you can just fill out a connection card and place it in the offering box. We'll get in touch with you about how that works as we take an even deeper dive into knowing who God is. We really have the first revelation about God in depth of who he is to his people given to us in Exodus chapter 33. God calls Abraham, he calls Moses, and it's at Mount Sinai that God begins to reveal his character. He reveals his name in the burning bush, but as we'll see in Exodus chapter 33, Moses asks an incredible question. Look down at verse 18 with me. We're going to begin reading in verse 12 and read all the way through chapter 34, verse 9. But I want you to see this because it's so amazing. It'll give you a a ramp up to where we're going this morning. In Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18, it's recorded, Moses says, please show me your glory. Show me who you are. 
I'm longing to know who you are. My heart is crying out for more. There's a void in my life as I have been called by you, as I'm following you. I have this deep desire to know you in a greater way. And so Moses cries out, show me your glory. And that's going to be our prayer. God, show me your glory. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. They need to know you. God said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Moses said to God, he said unto him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will pro- proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand in the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. That word, see my back, is like you can see the wake that is behind me after I pass by, as a boat goes zooming through the water and behind it leaves a wake. So God says, you can't see my glory, but you can see what follows afterwards. Chapter 34 and verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me. On top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks nor herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses obeyed. He cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him. And took, his hand, took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in a cloud. And stood with him there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Look at what Moses did, verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth 
and worshiped. Heavenly Father, I do pray as we look into this concept of your glory this morning that we would have that same response. We ask that you would show us your glory and we bow in worship. In your name we pray. Amen. As we begin a series on the attributes of God, I believe it's vitally important that we begin by understanding this concept of the glory of God. This concept of God revealing his attributes to all mankind. The scripture calls it the glory of God. What is this word glory? Maybe when you hear the word glory, you think of brightness, sunshine. You think of, of, of looking at the sun and being blinded, or, or perhaps you think of being in a dark room and somebody turning on a flashlight and, and that, that light just takes you back. Glory. Maybe you think of a painting with, with the light uh, shining behind someone in the painting that's supposed to be a, a Christian or, or a saint or maybe even Jesus himself. Glory. In order to understand the concept of what's happening when Moses says, show me your glory, we have to kind of get a ramp up in the context. Because remember, the children of Israel have left, have left Egypt. They've been taken through the Red Sea. They're, they've gone through the desert. And they've stopped at the bottom of this mountain where God is going to reveal himself to his people. And so Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and God inscribes the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments into tablets of stone. In fact, if you go back to chapter 32, it's really amazing. It says it was the actual words of the Lord written by God himself that Moses brings down the mountain. But the problem was he stayed up there a little bit too long, according to the children of Israel. He goes up. They don't know when he's going to come back. They, they assume he's going to go quickly. He's going to go see God and come back. But God has so much to reveal to Moses and to tell Moses, we don't know how long he was up there. But he comes back with these tablets of stone and he finds the children of Israel worshiping this golden calf that they've turned to idolatry just in the short time that Moses has been gone. God has descended on the mountain with thunder and lightning and earthquakes revealing his presence. Through a series of events, the children of Israel are judged for their idolatry. Moses, either symbolically or out of anger, throws the tablets down. The tablets are broken. So God tells him, Moses, you need to come back up so that I can bring, you can bring two tablets of stone and we can write this to be passed on to your children's children. You can imagine Moses in his frustration. He, he knows God's name, Yahweh. It was given to him in the, at the burning bush. But friends, Moses didn't have a Bible like you and I have today. Everything that he knew about God was revealed to him by God himself. And God had told him, this is what you're supposed to do, and this is how the nation is supposed to act, and, and all, of these, all of these laws, and again, we don't have time to get all into it, but all revealed his nature. It, it revealed God's priorities. 
But Moses is about to leave because God says, pack it up. You're going to the promised land. And Moses says, I'm not going to go unless you promise to go with me. And God says, of course I'm going to promise to go with you. My presence will go with you. But Moses wants more. He wants to not only know God's name, he wants to not only know about God, but he wants to know God. He wants to see God with his own eyes. You ever been there? You ever been to a point in your in your Christian life where you think, I just want to know God more. I, I need more. There's a crisis event and all the, all the trite sayings that have been given to me in the past are falling short. God, I need you. And I need you to show up in a big way. Would you show me your glory? That's where Moses is. God amazingly agrees. But he gives Moses a caveat. He says, listen, no human being could ever actually see me and live. They would be consumed by my glory. They would be consumed instantly by my greatness and my majesty. And so Moses, I'm going to give you the opportunity that no one else has experienced but Adam and Eve in the garden. And that is, I'm going to give you the opportunity to be exposed to my glory and I'm going to hide you in a rock. And what you're going to see is my wake after I pass by. And that, in and of itself, just the remnants of my glory will be enough to change your face to be so glowing that you have to cover it with a veil in order for people to even look at you. And so Moses, after making this plea, show me your glory, climbs Mount Sinai to have these two tablets of stone engraved once again to see the glory of God. What is the glory of God? I have two goals in my message this morning. One is to help you have a proper understanding of what God's glory is. And secondly, it's to help you have a proper understanding of what your responsibility is to the glory of God as a child of God. And so let's look at that first concept. What is the glory of God? If you were to do a word study on this concept of glory, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you would see that the Old Testament Hebrew word for glory carries with it the idea of weight, of heaviness. Nobody likes a light Christmas present, do they? You look and you pick it up, even if it's small, and if it's heavy, you think this is going to be a good one, right? Weight, distinction, honor. The New Testament Greek word for glory carries with it the idea of radiance, of brightness, of splendor, of fame, of honor, being displayed all over. And and in this context, the glory of God means that God's honor and his distinction is due only to himself. It means that God's name is bigger than any other name. It means that God's, 
that God's attributes and his essence is on display like never before. In trying to think of a of, of a, some sort of illustration to kind of help you understand this concept, the best that I could come up with, and this, this falls way short, okay, the best that I could come up with is to ask you some questions and just say, if I, if I were to mention two things about you, I bet you could understand what name I'm referring to simply by referencing two, two objects. One would be a set of numbers and one would be a picture, or a figure. The first one would be the numbers 23. 23. If you play sports and you have a jersey and your jersey has on it the numbers 23, some of you are smiling because I know where I'm going, then a name pops into your head. The right name, hopefully, pops into your head. The other one would be just a two-dimensional figure of someone jumping with arms outstretched, legs outstretched, with a basketball in his hand. And just by those two simple things, a set of two numbers and a two-dimensional monochromatic figure, you know what name? Michael Jordan. Why? Because That figure is on shoes, it is on shirts, it's on clothing. That number has been worn in honor of him all over the place. That I would go on mission trips in college and just after college. And you'd see the number 23 everywhere. You'd see that figure everybody everywhere knew who he was because he changed the game of basketball. And his name is really, really, really big. So much so that just by saying two numbers or a monochromatic shadow of a figure, you know exactly who it's talking about. You can put a name to that. Why? Because in our culture, and I'm not equating Michael Jordan with God at all, okay? But in our culture, that name, you could say in our world, that name is huge. That's this concept of glory. That if you said, I know Michael Jordan, there would be all of a sudden a status that you would have. There would be a weight to your other relationships because that carries with it heaviness and value. Does that make sense? Okay, that's this concept of glory in the Old Testament. That God, by nature of his name, is different than anything else, and it carries with it weight and value, a radiance, a brightness, a splendor, a distinction beyond all other, that there should be one name that is different than any other name to you. It should be a name that is treasured and is more valuable than any other name that should never be taken in a vain way because it carries with it the very weight of heaven and it is the name of God. It, had, it has a distinction to it, a weight, a radiance. But there's something specifically nuanced in the scripture about the glory of God that I want to explain to you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go maybe just a little bit deeper this morning, but I, I trust that you can stay with me and understand this because it's so foundational to your understanding of who God is, okay? When you see in scripture 
the glory of God. So glory is used to talk about more things than just God, right? It talks about weight. It talks about David and his glory as a king and all this kind of stuff. But when you see that phrase, the glory of God, it means something very specific. It's reference to Jesus coming in his second coming with all the glory of God and the glory of Christ. It's referenced here with, with Moses saying, show me your glory. And God the Father steps in and reveals the glory of God. And in that moment, in that phrase, every time you see it in Scripture, the glory of God, there is something very specific that it means. And here's what it means. It means all of his attributes, all of his goodness that is invisible because he's a spirit is now put on display. It means that his character, his attributes are now visible to you. That's what that means. You could say it this way. The glory of God is when God's invisible character and nature, his goodness, is made visible to you. That's what that means. So when Jesus comes to redeem his church, and when Jesus comes to rescue his church and to conquer sin, he is going to come with all of the glory of God. That all of the, what it means to be God is in Jesus and will be on full display when he descends to conquer sin the second, to, to, uh, in his second coming to conquer sin and to rescue humans. That, rescue his church. That's what the glory of God means. Now, since the glory of God is all of his attributes on display, I'm going to use a theological term that's very important for you to understand with this concept, okay? Now listen, listen carefully. It's called the simplicity of God. Now that doesn't mean that God is simple in the sense that we use it, like, oh, that's a simple person. It means that God is not made up of parts, but that he is one whole unit you say okay what does that have to do with anything it has to everything to do with this because a wrong view of god would be to view god like a like a pie and say here's his love his justice his kindness his mercy his greatness his omnipotence his omni his omniscience his omnipresence and you kind of take god and you divide him up into his attributes and that is that is a wrong view, a wrong way to view God. Why is that so important? Because when that happens, you, may up, you, you end up saying something like this. Well, God is a loving God, right? But he's also got like a little bit of wrath and a little bit of anger. But he's a loving God. And love is his primary attribute. And, and so maybe he'll overlook some things in your life, right? I mean, he's not going to be that wrathful against sin because, you know, he's loving God. He's love. Or you go the other way. God is wrath, 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 anger, anger, anger. And yeah, he's loving, but only to his children. But everything else, he's wrath. And, and, and you imbalance these, these attributes of God and you have to understand that God is not made up of his attributes. Listen carefully. God is his attributes. That God is one. He's not made up of parts. He is 
his attributes. And you say, okay, I'm having a hard time understanding that. That's okay. As we go into looking at these things, looking at these attributes of God, I think it's going to get more clear because everything about God is there all the time. And the reason this is so key is because you're never going to find God who is working out his wrath without also working out every single one of his other attributes. Some of you may have been raised in homes where, sadly, your father was not an accurate representation of who God is and that there will be moments of wrath and anger with no love, no care, no patience, no kindness, no long-suffering, no forbearance. And then afterwards you say, well, this is angry dad and let's hope that soon loving dad shows up. And you tend to look at God that way. These are times when God loves me, and these are times when God is upset at me. When when we understand this doctrine of simplicity, we understand that God is not made up of parts. That God is completely whole and everywhere at all times, all of himself. Which means, friends, when you get saved, you get all of God. And if you are not saved, you are under all of God. And when we see the glory of God, it is all of God on display. That makes sense? It's everything. It's not as though, okay, to Moses, I'm going to give the glory of God of, you know, uh, of this. And then to Abraham, I showed the glory of this. And to David, I showed the glory of this. It's like, no, no, it's all of everything, all the time, because God is one and he's not made up of parts. And so his justice is also linked to, inseparably linked to his love, which is also inseparably linked to his patience. And on and on and on. And so we have to see these as totally and completely whole, not as parts. So it's a responsibility of every child of God to understand who God is. And friends, I'll be honest with you, the church historically has done far better than we've done today. Just uh, last year, as part of some ongoing education I was taking, I saw a sixth grade doctrinal exam that was given during Sunday school to all of the sixth graders back in the 1800s. And this truth that I just shared with you that you think, oh, that's so deep, that would have been expected at fourth grade. I mean, you can't know God if you don't know that. Because everything will be wrong. I mean, if you think that God is this and then this, and in his wrath there is no love, and in his love there is no wrath, and in his patience there's no this, and in, then, then your whole view of God will be wrong. And so one of the reasons why I'm doing this series is to bring us back to center and to say, show us your glory. Show us who you are. And let, let us not be intimidated by truth, but let us embrace it, recognizing the God that we love and we serve because it is the responsibility of every child of God to understand the glory of God. 
so that you can in turn glorify him with your life. If you don't understand who God is, how can you glorify him? If you do not understand what the glory of God is, how can you give that glory back to him? To its full extent. To its greatest purpose in your life. And so with that in mind, let's look at chapter 33 and we'll see God's glory revealed. Unlike anywhere else in Scripture, we have a child of God looking at Yahweh, looking at God and saying, show me your glory. And God says, buckle up, because this is it. Number one, God's glory is seen in his goodness. Verse 19 of chapter 33. God's glory is seen in his goodness. Everything about God can be defined as good. God has no dark sides. There is nothing about God that you need to be afraid of if you are a child of God. There is no doctrine that should make you nervous. There is no aspect of God's character that we cannot embrace and be joy-filled in. Because God's glory is revealed in His goodness. This means that everything that God does is good. God actually is the definition of good. Secondly, God's glory is his name. We're going to park here for just a minute. When proclaiming the glory of the Lord, both at the beginning of the introduction in chapter 33 and at the end of his statement in chapter 34, both times God says, this is my name. Why? Well, because names in the Bible reveal the character of that person. What can we learn about God from his name? God's proper name is Yahweh. If you want to spell it, it's Y-H-W-H. That's how the Hebrew is. There are no vowels that way. And so if you'd like to spell it out better, remember how to say it. It's Y-A-H-W-E-H, Yahweh. It's also where we get the word Jehovah, Yahovah. If you take the, the words from the Greek word Adonai and put it inside of Yahweh, you get Jehovah. But the word Jehovah is not found in Scripture. It's Yahweh. This name is who God revealed himself to be to Moses at the burning bush. Remember, Moses said, if I'm going to go to Pharaoh... And stand in front of him and say, you better let all these people go. And if I'm going to stand in front of the nation of Israel and say, I'm here as God's messenger to rescue you, I better know who it is that sent me. And God says, you tell them that Yahweh sent you, that I am who I am. I have no beginning. I have no end. I have no separate parts. I am Who I am. God is not dependent on anything in order to be. Romeo and Juliet, he asked the question, I believe it's Romeo, no, it's Hamlet. 
To be or not to be, that's the question, right? You may think that's a silly statement, but it's actually an extremely deep statement. And here the question is, does God exist? And the answer is yes. God exists and he is the only thing that exists. The only being, the only existence that exists that is independent on everything else. We would say he is the uncaused cause. He is the creator and sustainer of everything in heaven and in earth. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is the great I am and his name reveals to us his existence. His glory is seen in his name. Thirdly, God's glory is his sovereignty, his control. Again, chapter 33 and verse 19. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. Pastor, why are some people saved and others aren't? Exodus chapter 33 and verse 19. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. That God's glory is seen in his absolute sovereignty. His glory is seen in casting his loving gaze on whomever he desires. You are not God. He will be gracious to whomever he is to be gracious. There is no outside force that acts upon God to make him act in any way. There is no outside force that changes God's mind, that changes God's will. God is absolutely sovereign in every way. There is nothing outside of his control. God has the right to rule and govern all things according to his will, and he does so every time and without exception. And to believe otherwise is to steal glory from God and to put it on something else. God's glory is seen in his absolute sovereignty. Fourthly, God's glory is seen in his mercy. Chapter 34 and verse 6. Once again, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful. God's wrath is turned towards sinners. Yet his glory is seen in being merciful to those sinners. God's mercy is his choice to withhold the just punishment that you and I deserve. Friend, every single one of us deserves punishment in hell for all of eternity just for being a sinner. We are born children of wrath. We sin because we are sinners. We don't become sinners when we start sinning. 
that you are born with a sin nature. And as a result of being born a sinner, you are under God's just punishment. But God in his glory is merciful to those who come to him by faith. And so his glory is seen in withholding that just punishment. His glory is seen in his grace. Not only is he merciful, but he's gracious. Not only does God withhold the just punishment that you deserve, friend, listen carefully. God doesn't just rescue you from hell. He places you in his family. That you go from a child of wrath to being a child of God. That you become his child and he is your father. Number six, God's glory is seen in his patience. Slow to anger. If you are here and you are not a Christian, I want you to listen very carefully. Every breath that you take, every heartbeat, is the patience of God calling you to repentance. God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Number seven. God's glory is his loyal love. You realize the love that is cast on you as the object of God's love, as his child, will never end. It never changes. You're not saved until you get to heaven. You're saved for the rest of eternity, friend. That God in his steadfast, loyal love is unchanging. It's never ending. It's a protection for all of eternity bestowed on his children. Number eight, God's glory is his faithfulness. It's the same yesterday, today, forever. There will never be a day when God is different than he is now. You never have to worry about whether or not God loves you today. You never have to worry about whether or not God's going to be there when you need him. That he's faithful. Number nine, God's glory is his forgiveness. If you're here and you're burdened down with sin, friend, God offers forgiveness. To separate from you. God doesn't forget. God God knows all, but he separates your sin from you. As far as the east is from the west. It's not like 465 in Indianapolis where you can go east long enough where you run back into the same spot and hit something. You know, you start going east, someone else starts going west, and you meet at the bottom of Indianapolis. That's not the way it works. Like God separates you from your sin now, but it will catch up with you later. But friend, as far as the east is from the west, saying that your sins will never be needed back to you, that you will never meet the consequence from your sin because it is forgiven. Because if you confess your sins, he's faithful to forgive. But not only is he faithful, he's also just. Number 10, verse 7 of chapter 34. 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But look at the second half of verse 7. But who will by no means clear the guilty. God is just. If you do not bow your knee to Him as your Lord here on this earth, you will spend eternity in a place called hell, separate from His goodness and His mercy and His grace, and only under His wrath for all of eternity, an endless succession of events. What is that like? I don't know. I can't understand it because I'm a finite human being. But friends, when that happens, it is just on God's part to meet that justice, to meet that punishment. How can God send people to hell? No. How can God send anyone to heaven? We've all earned hell through our sin. How can a righteous, just God allow anyone to enter into his presence in heaven? And the answer is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God is just in that he doesn't just freely pardon anyone he wants, but that he put that sin that was paid for by the blood of Christ on the shoulders of Jesus. And Jesus was separated from God so that you don't have to be. And he died under the wrath of God so that you don't have to. And if you allow him to be your substitute, friend, you can be forgiven. And the justice of God's wrath is worked out on Christ on the cross rather than on you in eternity. So God's glory is his justice. This is just a taste of God's glory. We could go on and on and on and on with the attributes of God. And each one, what is our response? To argue? No. It's to bow and worship. What are the applications for the glory of God for your life? Remember, the glory of God is, is his attributes, all of them. It's all of himself. It's his nature. It's its essence on display for you. So when the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God, it means that you can see the reverberations of, of his attributes all around you. It, it's God's nature being shown visibly to you. So, so what is your response to that? Number one, I have six of these for you. We're going to go briefly through. I believe I have six. Added another one. Yes, yeah, six. Number one, you have the opportunity to behold the glory of God every day in your Bible. What Moses asked and was granted, you at will can ask and be granted. You can see God's glory on display through the pages of Scripture. In order to talk with God, Moses had to set up this, this thing back in chapter 33 called this tent of meeting, where Moses had to go outside the camp because God's, God's presence, God's glory couldn't be shown to, to, the, to the people of God because Jesus hadn't died yet and the veil wasn't rent yet. 
And so he had to go outside the camp, away from everybody, and he would get in this little tent, and the glory of God would descend in, the, in this like cloud. And the glory of God would fill the tent as it did the temple later on in the tabernacle. And Moses would meet with God, being surrounded by the glory of God. And friend, you can do that anytime you want by sitting down and opening up the pages of Scripture and seeing God on display. The glory and presence of God, or the glory of God on display is no longer located at a distance from the people of God. The presence of God is no longer located as from a distance from God's people. It's actually present inside of His people through the sacrifice of, cross, of Jesus Christ on the cross. This glory is available to you. And this goes hand in hand with number two in the application. Number, number two, as a Christian, the way that your sanctification works, the way that you are changed, is to behold this glory of God in the Bible. I can't tell you how many people have asked, I, I don't know how to change. How do I change my wants, my desires, my thoughts? How do I change my aspirations? How do I change my actions? Am I just going to put on a band-aid and just try for this external conformity? How do I get real lasting change in my life? And I'm so glad you asked because that's what our scripture reading was about this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with an unveiled face. What does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit has pulled back the curtain on our eyes so we can actually understand Scripture as a child of God with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he's, he's talking about the Scriptures because he's contrasting the children of Israel who looked at the law and the prophets and looked at the Old Testament and were like, I have no idea what this means. They're looking with a veiled face. They had no faith. And yet we, when we come to Christ for salvation, that veil is lifted. And for the first time, you read Scripture and you understand Scripture and you're blessed by it. And you say, Pastor, it's never happened to me. I'm totally confused by the Bible. I go to open it and it's like dead words on a dead page. I have no idea what's going on. Maybe you need to have your veil lifted, friend. Maybe you've never come to Christ for forgiveness. Maybe you've come to church your whole life, but your knee has never bowed before your Lord in full submission as your only way to find forgiveness from your sin. And those of us who are believers, when we read the Scripture, we ask the question, what does this tell me about God? And then we bask in that glory. What happens? I was just talking to a church member recently who after being in South Bend for the winter, had traveled down to Florida and had been exposed to the sun. Do you remember what that looks like? I was in Australia for a missions trip and it was 120 degrees outside. When you open the door, it was like opening the door of your oven. You could feel it, but that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was that the, you could feel the sun. You could feel it baking you. They, down there, everybody's, they call it sun smart. 
You wear long sleeves. You wear a hat that covers your head. Because if the sun is exposed to your skin, you, you can feel every bit of it. It's unlike anything I've ever experienced. Some of you who've been in climates like that know what, know what I mean by that. It's not just say, oh, the sun's bright, but you can actually feel it on your skin. And if you're exposed to the sun, it changes your skin. Not because the sun physically is coming down and beating you with a hammer, right? But if you're exposed, you'll burn, you're eventually tan, and, and if you're exposed long enough, it'll actually produce cancer on your skin. You say, where did that cancer come from? It came from exposure to that element, to, to, to sun rays and beams, heat, UV light. Friend, the only way that you are changed as a Christian is to let God's glory beam forth from Scripture and let it slowly change you. You say, I read it, it didn't work, then keep reading. I prayed and and I stopped. Then keep praying. I went to church and I surrounded myself with, with God's people. And, and I tried it for a couple weeks and it seems like nothing changed. Then keep at it, friend. We live in a microwave culture where we want everything instantly. But God's word, as you expose yourself to the glory of God, you can't help but be changed. And one of the reasons why you stop reading the word is because you know you have sin in your life. And every time you read the word, that sin is present. And your choice is either to confess and forsake that sin or to confess and forsake the word of God. And you chose to leave the glory of God. Friend, you have an opportunity that Moses would have, he would have died for. To see the glory of God. I have a friend and ministry mentor who calls his personal devotional time getting glory from God. I like that. I'm going to sit down with my Bible and I'm going to get glory from God. I'm going to read until my skin burns. I'm going to read until I can feel his presence. You have that opportunity. What are you doing with it? Number three, your responsibility is to ascribe to the Lord glory in your worship. This has the idea of giving God what he deserves. God deserves everything in your life, therefore give it to him. We do not ascribe God glory for his sake as though somehow if, if we don't sing, that somehow if we don't ascribe glory to God, that he's going to be less God. Friends, we do that because you need that. You know why you come to church? Because you need church. You need to gather with a, with a congregation and sing, who else would send his only son? Only a holy God. You need to be reminded about that. Who else can rescue me from my failings? Only a holy God. You need that. Ascribe to the Lord glory. How do you do this? We don't have time. I'll 
First Chronicles chapter 16, verses 28 to 34, kind of, kind of list ways in which we can ascribe to the Lord glory. I'll just list them for you. You can go back and look at them. It says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. How do you do this? You offer up. You give is what you do. You give of yourself. You give of your time. You give of your finances. You give. You're a giving person. You tremble before him. There should be a sense of awe that is raised in your heart when you worship. Let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. You proclaim God's majesty. Again, not because God needs it, but because you need it. You need at least once a week to gather with your brothers and sisters and say, God is God and I am not. Thank you for this reminder. I ascribe to you your worthy position. Verse 34 of 1 Chronicles 16, you give thanks. When was the last time you prayed for an hour and all you did was give thanks? And you had to stop because someone interrupted you. Thank you. Friends, this is the reason of this gathering. It's the purpose of our service to to ascribe to God glory. It's not to get some spiritual shot in the arm so you can so you can somehow make it through the next week, friends. It's to gather to be reminded about the character of God and to put him in his rightful place and to ascribe to him glory. And and if we had time, we could go deeply into the, the recognition, the concept that when we do that, we are joining with the choirs of heaven. That you are entering into an action in which heaven never stops and for those brief moments... You get to join the angels. You get to join your loved ones. You get to join the hosts of heaven as they ascribe glory and honor. And when we gather together, friends, we get to join them in that. Number four. You glorify God in your life by displaying his attributes in every area of your life. Now that you recognize that the glory of God is his attributes as a whole, his character displayed, doesn't that give new meaning to 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what do you do? You do all to the glory of God. That when you display his glory in whatever you do, that you are reflecting God's glory back to him. Everything in your life should reflect the attributes of God. Every time that you sit down for a meal at a restaurant and you look at your waitress and you are kind and you are loving and you are gracious and you recognize that that waiter or that waitress probably is doing what they're doing not because they want to, but because they have to. And you look at them in the eyes and you say, I want to let you know that we love you, and because of that, we're going to be your easiest table today. And we're going to leave you a good tip, and we're going to pray for you before our meal. What's your name, and what can we pray for you for? Do you know what happens? The whole, the whole concept of the meal changes. The whole attitude why you're there, 
What happens when your food is cold? I guarantee you that your attitude is going to change a little bit in how you deal with it. That in everything you do, when you glorify God, you are ascribing to Him glory. And I'm reflecting His attributes back to Him. And you say, Pastor Joe, I, whew, I try, but that's so hard. Is it always going to be this hard? No. Because one day you'll do it perfectly in heaven. That's number five. That one day you'll be like Him when you see Him. And you will ascribe perfect glory Some of you have loved ones in heaven. And your dear one who was here on this earth, either for a short time or for a length of time, showed you the shadows of God's attributes. They were loving, but there were moments when they weren't. They were kind, but there were moments when they weren't. They were patient, but there were a lot of moments when they weren't. And in heaven right now, you know what they're doing? They are perfectly showing all of God's attributes so that when you see them and they are showing the glory of God perfectly, you'll say, I knew you were going to be like this. I knew it. I saw glimpses of this on the earth. I knew you could be this patient. I saw you at times be this patient. I knew you could be this loving. I knew it. And now you're perfect. And they say the same thing to you. I had my doubts, but now you're perfect too, you know? And one day the struggle in this is going to be over, but until that time, friends, we work hard to the best of our ability to show the attributes of God. Lastly, if you want to know what this looks like, Just look at Jesus. Long ago, the author of Hebrews says, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last times, he's spoken to us through his Son, through whom he is appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, Hebrews 1 and verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Friend, what does that mean? It means that Jesus radiated perfect glory everywhere he went, at all times and in all ways. That's why we say you need to be like Jesus. That's why. It's because Jesus was the glory of God on display for you and for me. And we have him recorded in the scriptures we have his person in the scriptures we have his actions in the scriptures and when we read about Jesus we recognize his glory as the glory of the only God Jesus has declared him friend do you have a new respect for the glory of God do you understand how this fits into his attributes How you are to be the living, breathing, walking, talking evidence of the glory of God all around you. That you should ascribe to Him the glory that He deserves in our worship. Would you bow your head and would you follow 
the pattern of Moses? And would you respond in worship this morning? Oh God, we come before you and we recognize that we are just your creatures. And yet you have implanted in us new life. You have given us your very spirit, your very life, and we we bow in worship and we ascribe to you glory. Glory.